Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. So joining us for the first time, Jacob isn't here with us this time, but actually I have my other brother, David, here with us. And David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Blake Osler's son, and I've always been interested in the things he has to say. This is the first time I've been, well, it's not the first time I've been invited to be on the podcast, but it's the first time I felt like I should. I went to BYU, I graduated in computer science, and I'm going to be attending the University of Utah Law School this fall. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to be able to discuss these things with my family. Had a couple weeks off here. Last time we finished out the second book, and we're starting the third one today. So the third book is entitled Of God and Gods. And based on our last conversation from chapter 12 of the last book, we kind of got into some of the different themes and aspects of what we're going to talk about throughout this entire book. But to expand upon that, we're going to, you know, obviously this goes more into depth on that. The first chapter does kind of touch upon a lot of the points we already have, but it also points out some of the other aspects of the later teachings of Joseph Smith. And the title of this chapter is Distinctive Facets of the Mormon Concepts of God and Gods. So you go over six distinctive facets, and we're going to go over each of them here. So rather than introduce them, we'll just kind of go into them one by one. But I guess before we even do that, briefly, if you could, five minutes or less, just kind of overview, if you will, not necessarily chapter by chapter, but kind of what is your goal with this book and what is different about the way that you wrote this book than the way you wrote the other books? Because you said there was a difference before. This book is much more of a textual study much more of an assessment of very basic ideas about God that were promulgated by Joseph Smith and to show, at least in the first chapter, what I believe I'm showing is that biblical scholarship has come around to the views that Joseph Smith was teaching in the 1840s and a bit earlier. And the best biblical scholarship would support what I would call the innovative distinctives of Joseph Smith's thought. In particular, the types of things that he was teaching about, the Council of the Gods, the kinds of things he was teaching about creation, the relationship between humans and God and humans and the world, they were really revolutionary in his day. I can't overstate that enough. Joseph Smith was teaching things that, in part, got him killed. I mean, we pointed out last time that a part of what outraged that those who published the Nauvoo Expositor was these unthinkable ideas, just blasphemy, that there would be a council of gods, or more than one god, or a plurality of gods. And they denounced them all. That's not to say that their perceived view of Joseph Smith's polygamy wasn't also problematic, but at least it shows that these ideas were considered to be outrageous in his day, and they're now very standard, and I would believe at this point the consensus view of scholars of the Old and New Testaments about what is being taught there. The remarkable thing is that when I speak with, I'm going to call them fundamentalists and evangelicals, that when they read the Bible, 
they read it with a set of glasses on that really blinds them to what's actually being taught there. They have their preconceived view of what it says, and they never venture beyond their preconceived view and read into it their view, but never get to the actual text and what's really going on in it. And so in part, this is also a critique of Protestant and Catholic Christianity in the way that it reads the text and has basically chosen to not only downplay but denounce parts of the biblical teaching, which Joseph Smith chose to emphasize and which became a basis for his rather remarkable view of God and gods. Okay. And also, I think it's in the foreword of this book, you claim, and I guess this could be said of all of your books, but this one specifically just because you're doing biblical textual analysis more than in the others, but you say that your mission is to save the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew teachings in the Bible from the Greek mind. And so we've sort of talked about that in regards to like the apostasy and like where the ideas of this impassable, unfeeling, unchangeable God comes from. So in this context, or at least in regards to this book, what are like the main aspects of what you're intending to do? I'm going to take a historical journey about teachings of God, beginning with the very earliest proto-Hebrews, if you will, the Canaanites, and putting their teachings into the context of the world in which those teachings were promulgated so that we can read them in context and what they were really saying in the context of, of how they were written. And we're going to travel from before the Old Testament through the Old Testament times Keeping in mind that what I'm doing is taking the best of critical scholarship, higher criticism, some people call it, and using it to show that Joseph Smith's innovations are well-based and well-grounded, and the scholarship has come around in large part to see many things the way he taught them. We're going to travel through the New Testament and its views of the relationship between the Father and the Son and, and divine beings. We're going to go into the uh, intertestamental period along with that. The intertestamental period being period of Second Temple Judaism from about 500 BCE to about 70 AD. And then we're going to travel into the debates about the Trinity, which will, of course, take us into the post-New Testament world primarily. There's been a tremendous amount of work in philosophical theology on the notion of the Trinity and the notion of the relation between the Father and the Son. And I look at the Latin Trinity and the Social Trinity, and then I complete the journey that we're taking with a close look at the Orthodox, and by Orthodox, I mean Greek Orthodox. I don't mean the Catholic and Protestant Orthodox. I mean the Greek Orthodox views, the Protestant and Catholic views generally, and I'm going to get very specific, their views of theosis were being made divine and what it could possibly mean for them take a closer look at that, what that means in the Latter-day Saint tradition, and flesh that out to what I think is a very inspiring, meaningful theology and view of life. I'll post a summary that you wrote and posted on the blog, A New Cool Thing, which we've referenced a few times. I'll post that on our website as well as the Facebook page so that you know we can get oriented to where we're going. But let's dive right in. So the first section is or I guess you go over and we're going to kind of skip over that part, but like I said, you talk about there are unique facets of Mormonism, and that's what we're getting into here. So first one is creation by organization of matter. 
And we talked about in, you know, a couple times in the first book, as well as in the last couple chapters of the second book, about creation ex nihilo, meaning creation out of nothing, and the problems with that. And now we're going to kind of put forth the Mormon view of where we have creation ex materia, or creation from existing material of some sort. So last time we, we dived into the specific parts of the King Follett Discourse and Sermon in the Grove about the nature of God, and, you know, we argued that at length, a couple hours already. So we're not going to hit on that too hard in this podcast, but we're going to look at the other aspects also introduced, because there's some other stuff in those two sermons that we didn't even touch on. So first off, on the King Follett Discourse, Joseph Smith states, the word create came from the word bara. It does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to organize, the same as a man would organize materials to build a ship. Hence, we infer that God had materials to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter, which is element, and in which dwells all the glory. Element had an existence from the time he had, meaning God. The pure principles of element are principles that can never be destroyed. They may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. Also, earlier in some of Joseph Smith's teachings, he's also... Oh no, I guess we'll get into this in a minute, but not only can it not be destroyed, he's just saying that element itself is co-eternal with God. We'll get into some of the implications of that later, but first off, so he's referencing this word bara. First off, what, what's some context of Joseph Smith and his actual translation of languages? Because when we talked about the Book of Mormon before, he didn't actually know any ancient languages, but we know that later in his life he studied Hebrew under... I, I think he just, like, hired some Hebrew teacher. Yeah, Joshua says this. he was Spanish. He was a Sephardic Jew and amazingly educated. Having a teacher like uh, Sazes for Joseph Smith was nothing short of a miracle, frankly. But Sazes was well qualified to teach not only Hebrew, but the various Jewish and Hebraic teachings, the way that they would be laid out from a person who's well acquainted with Hebrew. And he was well advanced in biblical studies as well. And so I, I have to believe that a lot of the insight that Joseph Smith has that follows the time when he was taught by Sazis beginning in 1836. There seems to be this flowering of Hebrew ideas that have been more or less adopted by higher critics of the uh, Hebrew writings and I think demonstrated to be very valid. Joseph Smith, I think, had genuine insights, but I think they're insights based upon his interaction with learning Hebrew from Seizes. S-E-I-X-A-S. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, like, I would definitely see the same thing that you're saying, just like once he started to study Hebrew, a lot of the revelation or ideas seemed to be spurred from that, like the Book of Abraham itself, as well as especially his explanation here. He's doing some biblical explaining of the actual language. So, first off, We've talked about this before, but we're talking about creation now, exactly as he says, from some sort of chaotic matter. But most of Christianity holds creation ex nihilo as the bedrock. So doesn't the Bible start out that way? Doesn't it say God created? And I guess Joseph Smith is saying here, it's not what those actual words mean. So he's referencing a Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, I take it? Yeah, I think what he's reflecting is he's reflecting on this word bara. A lot of evangelicals make the assertion that it's it's a uniquely divine verb. That is, it's used only in connection with divine action. That's not true, but the assertion is often made. 
and we have to place this back into the way that the Hebrews were looking at the world. And they express this in several ways. The word bara means actually to divide and cut asunder. And so God creates by separating light from darkness, separating the heavier elements from the lighter elements, separating water from land, and so forth. So bara, what he's doing in organizing the already existing substrata, if you will. Now, the term substrata would not have been a Hebrew thought at all. The Greeks had a view. They never believed in creation ex nihilo, but what they believed in were creation basically from prime matter. Prime matter would be the lowest, most disorganized, most featureless state of matter, so that all it is is basically a potential to receive impressions of order on it. That's all it is, is potential. But the Hebrews didn't speak of substrata. They didn't speak of prime matter. The Hebrews spoke in terms of the underlying chaotic ocean that already existed at the time that God began to create. And when God creates his temple, he sets the timbers of his temple in the Psalms by laying them into the waters that are already there before he even begins to create. In Genesis, the waste and the water are already there as a background when he begins to create as well. And equally importantly, there's a mythopoeic expression of this kind of chaos in the sea monsters, Leviathan and Rahab, because they're constantly challenging God. Chaos is constantly threatening to overtake the ordered creation. And so the mere fact that it's been ordered by God doesn't mean that he just got absolute control and he's now controlling the universe. These features of chaos continue to threaten the universe. And if we don't follow God's law and give order to the universe through the law, then that chaos will come crashing down again like waves from the primordial ocean to overtake us and drown us. All right. And I'll put a, you have like an illustration in your book kind of illustrating how the ancient Hebrews would have viewed the world. And it really illustrates your point quite literally, I guess. Yeah. I mean, look at it the way they did. If you look at the illustration, you'll see they were just good empiricists. They didn't have telescopes, they didn't have microscopes, and when they looked at the world, it looked like it was flat plate. If you looked far enough, the horizon seems to drop off the edge. They looked at the sky and they saw what they thought was kind of a dome, if you will, that was blue because it was holding waters above the dome, and God had put holes in the dome now and then so the, the rain could fall through it. And if you got to the edge of the world, it was being held up by pillars, which are often mountains in their worldview, and then you have an underworld. It's shell, but you have the pillars of the earth holding up the whole world. So just envision a plate, and then you've got some pillars underneath the plate holding it up. And then there is this covering over the plate that is thin and see-through, and on the other side of that is water. And that's how they envision the world, because standing on the earth and looking up into the sky, and from as far as they could see, that's exactly what it appeared to be. And as I said, they were good empiricists, so when they went looked at the world and it appeared to be that way, they took it to be that way because they had no other reason to believe that it was different. All right, and then kind of moving on to a, a different aspect of the implications of Joseph Smith's teachings. Also, not only did he teach that there was matter coexisting with God, but also that we as intelligences also coexist eternally with God. And we've talked about this already, and it's a pretty well-known aspect of Mormon thought, but it was quite obviously revolutionary for the day, because we're saying we're somewhat not necessarily equal in glory, but equal as in we're the same kind as God, and this was revolutionary teaching. It's still revolutionary. In fact, even a moment's thought will show this is the most astounding teaching in the history of religion, the notion that we too are uncreated, and that we are of the same species as God. 
has to be the most astounding teaching that's ever fallen off of the lips of a prophet. So, yeah, this is an amazing teaching. And the theological implications of that view are so far-reaching that it's going to take years and years and years to plumb the depths of that belief. Definitely true. All right, and then also within traditional Christianity, you have sort of this creator and creature relationship within God, because in that mode of thought, we are created by the, you know, God out of nothing creates us, and therefore he is a creator, like a potter, and we are this thing that would not exist otherwise. But in Mormonism, you would think that we have done away with that by saying that we're co-eternal with God, but you point out in the book that Mormonism still maintains somewhat of a creator-creature relationship. So what do you mean by that? Because that would seem to defeat the purpose. Well, God has organized the world for our benefit and so that it serves us, and he has organized our bodies. There's a created part of us that it borns and begins, and then it will die and decay. It's not eternal. In the resurrection, it will be glorified, but the bottom line is still that there's a part of us that is created, and there's a part of us that is uncreated. By saying there's a part here and a part there, I don't mean to create some kind of form of hard dualism, but I don't mean to rule it out either. So what we're looking at is very simply the notion that there's still a notion of creation in Mormonism. God still organizes the world in the way that the Hebrews and those writing the New Testament believe that God organized everything and thus was a creator in that sense. God's a creator in the same sense that an artist is the creator of a painting. The artist doesn't create the paint, he doesn't create the canvas, but he does create the order on the canvas to reflect beauty and to reflect his purposes, and that's how God worked with the world. Okay. And that just kind of leads into this next part here. So, and I'd like to have a whole podcast on this at some point, but for now we're just going to give the summary. So you point out, in Mormonism there are at least three views of what intelligences are and how they come to be. So the first view is an uncreated intelligence with properties of free will and autonomy that exists without beginning, but is later created in the sense that it is begotten, whatever that means, as a spirit child of God, and at that time becomes a spirit. So that's your some sort of formless intelligence, and then you become organized into a spirit, or it's just like a second level of being. That's one view. The next one is intelligence is a singular thing, light and truth itself, which is uncreated, and then intelligences are created when they're individuated from this big, whatever, primordial intelligence as free and autonomous beings who later are begotten sons and daughter of God. So that's another view. Third view is spirits are identical to autonomous intelligences, which exist without beginning and without being begotten. So no spirit birth in that view. We were individuated from all eternity in this view. You then point out the first view was elucidated by B.H. Roberts. The second view was held by Bruce R. McConkie and Charles Penrose, and I'd say probably, to some degree, Parley Pratt. And the third view, you say, is Joseph Smith's actual view. And we've talked about this before, so that seems about right. I'd like to point out, I guess, Brigham B.H. Roberts was just trying to make sense of the different teachings of Joseph Smith, which seemed to say there's a spirit eternally, never was created, nor indeed can be, and kind of more Parley Pratt's view, or I guess, you know, other views where there's this main intelligent and then somehow it was 
begotten. Or I guess he's also trying to make sense of like Brigham Young's view, where we are literally born of God. And so he had this what's called a two-stage. But you say the third view is Joseph Smith's view, and that we should remain open to all of these views. Do you want to say anything about these views or why one holds more weight than the other to you? Can I ask a clarifying question? Please do. All right. So in the third view, it says that the spirits are identical to autonomous intelligences. Does that imply that we are separate? Or does that mean that we are like spirits are actually intelligences? Or does that mean they're separate entities? No, it means that spirits can consist of intelligences. Their property, the spirits exist eternally. Their property is to be intelligent and they're therefore called intelligences. And so these eternally existing spirits, which are all so-called synonymously intelligences, exist without beginning and without having been begotten. And so spirits and intelligences are synonyms for each other. They mean the same thing. Oh, so you're just saying they're interchangeable phrases. Right, right. And that's okay. why Joseph yeah, Smith According used to Joseph it. Smith. Yeah, and Joseph Smith used spirits and intelligence interchangeably in his later Nauvoo discourses. And the question is, like in DNC 93, he doesn't speak of intelligences in the plural. He speaks of intelligence singular. And I think that's where Orson Pratt... Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah, was coming from when he was talking about intelligence and that from this intelligence, we would then have spirits that are begotten into individuals. And so before spirit birth, there were no individuals at all. There was just this intelligence. Or on B.H. Roberts' view, he's reading this and reading section 93 and trying to make sense of it in light of Joseph Smith's teachings as well. And says, well, what I think that means is we begin with as uncreated intelligences And then the intelligences are further organized through a process of being begotten into spirit children of our Heavenly Father. And so the spirits exist. And so B.H. Roberts has what I would call a two-stage view. Orson Pratt has a three-stage view. And Joseph Smith had a one-stage view. So here are the stages. In B.H. Roberts' views, we're first intelligences. And then we go through spirit birth. And then we're individuated as spirits. Okay. And so that's a two-stage view. We're first intelligences, and then we're spirits. Orson Pratt has a three-stage view. There is this unindividuated intelligence, and then we are individuated into what we would call, you know, there's this process of being begotten from this intelligence in which there's no individuation. And then afterward, there are intelligences that then become born as spirits. The third view, as I said, I believe is Joseph Smith's view, and and I've written an article about this in the 1982 Spring Dialogue, where I think I was the first really to address this issue about what are spirits and intelligences and so forth. But I detail going over in some dealing with each of the texts over time with early Mormons and how this notion developed. Looking at it, Joseph Smith seems to have come from a view that was not as clearly defined I mean, it can be argued that there are several passages in the Book of Mormon that presume or assume the preexistence of persons. And in fact, they can be read that way. But as Orson Pratt said, he, he believes that without the later teachings of Joseph Smith, he never would have seen that in the Book of Mormon. And so it's really a recognition that comes from the later teachings, if you will. And Joseph Smith's views were were developed over time. And there are several, at least, Six sermons in Nauvoo where he talks about eternal intelligences, he very clearly believed that uh, spirits are uncreated, and that's the way he puts it. He doesn't say intelligences are uncreated. That's said, stated in the book of Abraham, that there are intelligences 
they're uncreated. And he uses the word nolam, which is a translation, as we've said before, of the Hebrew word halam, which means just a, a long period of time. But the way Joseph Smith uses it, what he's saying is they're eternal without creation at all. And so, and in the book of Abraham, intelligences and spirits are used interchangeably and synonymously as well. So I'm quite confident that Joseph Smith never taught that there was a spirit birth. Let me also point out, we have no record, and I don't believe that he ever did, of Joseph Smith teaching about a mother in heaven, or that there was a spirit birth through a mother in heaven. That was a teaching of Brigham Young. And so I don't believe that Joseph Smith had a notion of a mother in heaven. There are others that want to argue, well, if you look at those things that came, you know, within a year after its death, they're already talking about spirit birth and a mother in heaven, and I'm saying, so what? We have lots of people who are around Joseph Smith and who wrote down his teachings as he taught them in private, and not a single one of them broaches the subject of a mother in heaven or spirit birth. And to me, it's very clear that he didn't teach either of those views, neither spirit birth nor a mother in heaven. And so anybody who reads those views back into Joseph Smith's thought is reading anachronistically and imposing on his thought something that I believe is foreign to it. All right. Well, I want to move on here, but one other question, I guess, on that. So, in your view, if we take Joseph Smith's view of intelligences, how then are we children of God? Because it would seem we're not literally children of God anymore. Yeah, we're not literally children of God. We're children of God in two senses. We're the same kind of thing that God is. In the way that you're human, I'm also human. We are of the kind gods, okay, of which God is the chief exemplification. We're also gods in the sense that God is working with us and through us to adopt us as his children. And so he has taken on the role of becoming our father to create for us this earth and to give us the opportunity to be begotten. And if you read the scriptures, we have a twofold plan, and that is we begin this life already as sons and daughters of God because God is the creator. And what's he the creator of? Well, he's the creator of this earth and the organizational processes that give us our human bodies. And he's also our father in the sense that he's seeking to have a relationship with us that is in the nature of adoption. He wants to adopt us as his sons and daughters. And so those are the two senses in which we're the sons and daughters of God, and both are present. Clearly, the adoption view is, is clearly present in the Book of Mormon in several places. I can't see anywhere that a literal spirit birth is present in any of Joseph Smith's revelations or teachings, but it's been worked into that in later thought. So, you know, I would ask the question, well, what do you mean? Do you believe that there are literally one mother or several mothers in heaven that are being impregnated and they're having spirits? I would say a lot of Mormons do believe that, but absolutely, that's a common teaching. Yeah, and I would say just putting it very clearly like that kind of reduces it to absurdity, but it's not Joseph Smith's view in any event. One last thing then on that, there's no canonized scripture or anything that would say one way or another, so you can definitely be open to that view without being in opposition to the church. But I hear a talk that they, if possible, would really like to canonize the proclamation to the family as part of the Doctrine and Covenants, and that one does say specifically that we are literal children of Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother. So what would you do if they were to canonize that, which it looks like they're going to? Well, and there's a First Presidency statement that was given by Joseph F. Smith and his counselors that also adopted the view that there's a mother in heaven. And if they did that, then I would say, what makes it revelation? For me, revelation comes because a person receives um, the spirit of revelation and pure knowledge from God as God discloses the truth. 
it's not enough for me that a person is of the opinion that this is the truth, and I would ask them what their opinion is based on. I would think that opinion would soon evaporate if we actually explored the basis of the opinion. More importantly, it seems to me there's a vast distinction between a first presidency statement, which I still give deference to, but I would give more deference to the scriptures, Revelation in particular, and to the teachings of Joseph Smith. And why? Because they have what I would call an epistemological priority. If something is based on Revelation, I have a reason to believe it, because God knows a lot more than I do. In fact, he knows the way things actually are. If a man comes up with a view and he's in authority to promulgate a view, like, like Brigham Young was with the Adam-God theory, I have reason to at least take a good look at it and see if it will make sense, and if it doesn't, then I'm free to reject it. If it becomes part of the canon, as you say, they want to canonize it, then I would ask what it means to have a first presidency statement canonized. Now, in a sense, the, the statement by Wilford Woodruff has been canonized, and you know, the first and second manifesto. And, and he talks about a revelation that he received, that he saw very clearly what would happen to the church if the church didn't give up polygamy. And I know that the way that this proclamation on the family came about is different subjects were given to the, the apostles, and they all wrote on the subject to add to the proclamation. So there is no kind of unified revelation that would be a backing for that kind of a view. I would also like to caution, and, and, and this is just part of being a reasonable Mormon. We had a teaching in the church for a very long time that people of African descent were not entitled to either the priesthood or to blessings in the temple. It was a tragic mistake, and we should not repeat that kind of mistake and all become, well, there must have been a reason because Brigham Young taught it and we can't change what he taught, when in fact there was no revelation that backed it up. There was never a basis for the belief. So I would want to scrutinize in my theology what is the basis for the belief that this has divine backing or there's revelation. As I said, if it comes from God, I have very good reason to believe it because he knows so much more than I do. If it comes from another person and they're stating their opinion, I have no more reason to believe that than that this person is an intelligent person in a, in a position of authority. But that certainly isn't sufficient warrant to require me to believe it or to persuade me to accept it. Okay. I know you're generally conservative on your lot of views, but I think you'll find that you're on the side of a lot of liberals because they like to also try to de- revelationize, I guess, if you will, the proclamation on the family on terms of homosexuality and that kind of relationship. So I think if they do try to can it, well, let's say this, maybe you should write a paper on it that gets published in something that a lot of people will read so that those thoughts can get out there that maybe they will. Anyway, let's move on with the current discussion if everyone's okay with that. All right, so this kind of transitions, we'll, this will sum up the creation section and then transition into the next section. So John Levinson, who is the Albert A. List Professor of Jewish Studies at Harvard Divinity School, said this about the first chapters of Genesis. He says, Nowhere in the seven-day creation scheme of Genesis 1 does God create the waters. They are most likely primordial. The traditional Jewish and Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo can be found in this chapter only if one translates its first verse as, in the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, and understands it to refer to some comprehensive creative act on the first day. But that translation, subject to doubt since the Middle Ages, has fallen into disfavor among scholars, and the rest of the chapter indicates that the heaven was created on the second day to restrain the celestial waters. 
and that's referring back to kind of what we talked about before, and the earth on the third day, meaning dry land. It is true and quite significant that the God of Israel has no myth of origin. Not a trace of theogony, which just means the beginning of God, can be found in the Hebrew Bible. God has no nativity. But there do seem to be other divine beings in Genesis 1, to whom God proposes the creation of humanity, male and female together. For example, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. When were these other divine beings created? They too seem to have been primordial. From the biblical accounts of the divine assembly in session, it would appear that these sons of God, or gods, lowercase g, played an active role and made fresh proposals to God who nonetheless had the final say. So that sums up what scholars are saying about that, and so they seem to be in agreement with what Joseph Smith was saying, and again, he was probably getting it from a scholar of his time too. But the second part of that talked about who these other divine beings are in the beginning when he's counseling with them to create. So the next section, if you can't tell, is called the Council of Gods. And we're going to get into this a lot more. The whole second chapter is about the Council of Gods, so we don't have to, and I guess another section in this chapter also touches on this. So as far as the Council of Gods goes, first off, what is the Council of Gods? And then I guess in, in this section, you kind of just point out that fairly early in Joseph Smith's writings and thought, there was some sort of evidence of a council of gods, or at least other beings besides God. So what do you want to say about that? Beginning even with the book of Moses, Joseph Smith takes the plural pronouns in Genesis as actual plurals. He actually has a dialogue between the Father and the Son in creation, and when he's talking with Christ in the creation, that's who the let us is referring to, because Christ and the Father are creating. And of course, I reject modalism in the Book of Mormon. There are several places where I think that there is a clear distinction there, but others read it differently. But the bottom line is that Joseph Smith very clearly taught about a council of gods. He talked about it repeatedly in his sermons. It's referred to in DNC 121 and clearly in the Book of Abraham. And so this is another teaching that has become the consensus of scholars in the Old Testament. There can be little question that the Hebrews who wrote the Bible and the Jewish people who redacted it and put it together believed that there was a council of gods before the creation of the world that met and counseled with one another about the creation of the world and that there are essentially, just like there was in the Canaanite belief system, there were in Israel three different levels. There was El, the Most High God. There was the right hand, you know, the vizier of El in the council, who actually met and used his own name in the council. And then there are the members of the council. And so the council of God consists of God, of right-hand man, vizier, or vizier of El, and then of the retinue of the sons of God. Now, I will add that at this point, there's never referred to anything such as the daughters, or council of the daughters of God. The members of the council are sons of God. You can make of that what you will. It might not sit well with modern ears, but that's the fact. And we shouldn't retranslate it to try to do away with what they actually believe just because it doesn't sit well with modern sensibilities. Okay. Like I said, we'll get into that a lot more in the next chapter and a couple sections later from here. Actually, we'll probably touch on it a lot in every section here. So next we're going to touch on this subject. And we've already talked about this for about two hours last time. So 
I don't want to talk about the controversial aspects as much. I'll touch on them, but it's the supreme or head god. And so I don't have it here, but I'll just kind of sum up. And if you have it in front of you, you can read it. But in the Sermon in the Grove, as well as the King Follett discourse, Joseph Smith explains that the head god, referring back to the Council of Gods, called together the gods, and then they created or they decided to create the heavens and the earth that way. But basically just saying the head god or the head one of the gods called together the other gods. And so as we spoke at length last time, this notion of a head god is kind of in contrast with some of the other views that Mormons had after Joseph Smith, where there's an infinite regress of gods higher than him and things like that. Well, again, we already talked about that, but... Well, let me read that just so we can get that out of the way. And then I want you to kind of talk about what the biblical scholarship on the Hebrew understandings of this are. So let me just read this to get out of the way. And then I guess, David, if you have any questions, you can pipe in. So I take it these gods on the council were all not fully divine except for God and Jesus it depends, what, what, depends on what you mean fully divine. If you mean that they had the full glory of El, they didn't. Well, yeah. But they, were, they were clearly of the divine kind. They were the same kind of being that God was in, you know, in what they were. Like us. Talking, yeah, genus and species. Yeah, it's like, like you're the same kind of being I am. But just they're slightly higher than us because they're on the council. No, it's it's more like a king. I mean, a king can have sons, but the sons have to listen to the king. He's still the king. And so they modeled the council really, in fact, the other way around, they modeled their monarchy on what they believed was the heavenly council. And so the king was the same thing. He was the father of the of the divine sons. And we'll get into this next week. There were 70. And God took and put them over all of the nations of the earth. And Yahweh, one of his sons, was appointed to be the God for Israel. And then they were doing a crappy job. They weren't taking care of the poor people. And taking care of the people over whom they'd been placed. So God deposes them and says, hold it. You guys are doing a terrible job. You're not taking care of the widows and the fatherless and the poor. And so tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you mortal, and I'm going to become the sole God. These special 70 gods? Well, not just the 70, but all of his sons and daughters. That would include us. Because we're all, as a practical matter, we're all members of the divine council in some sense. Okay. Yeah. And so what he does is he sends his sons and daughters to earth to figure out how to take care of the poor and the fatherless and to learn how to love people sufficiently that they're worthy to be rulers over them. And the father is trying to teach them what, it's, what it means to be a compassionate monarch. So the whole Old Testament system is basically modeled on the concept of the monarchy. And so the king has all these sons, but he also has a vizier. He has a right-hand man. Every king did. A guy who is the fixer, takes care of everything, actually carries out all the orders. The king just sits on his throne while the vizier goes out and takes care of the kingdom. And so the vizier is the guy who gets sent to do everything. And this is a very consistent teaching, and as we'll see as we go along, it's one of the other teachings that we're going to talk about tonight. So, All right, so for the Supreme Head God, as we talked about last time at length, there still remains some dissonance regarding several issues related to the status of the head god in Mormon thought. These issues include, one, whether the god and father of Jesus Christ is a supreme god in some sense, a most high god who is the god of all other gods, 
Two, whether the Father is just one of an infinite hierarchy of gods, and thus not a head god or god of gods. And three, whether this head god is in fact the God and Father of Jesus Christ, or some other divine figure altogether. The alternative to the view that the Father is the head God who is the supreme God of all other gods is the view that the Father was merely appointed to become one of the head gods and that there are, logically, gods more supreme and ultimate than the Father. So, again, we talked about those issues last time, but those are still options that Mormons may have just based on the readings, but I really like what you said. Here you say the extant texts of Joseph Smith's King Follett and Grove Sermons allow several readings. However, I find more persuasive the reading that there is a Most High God who presides over a council of gods and a chief vizier who is appointed to act as the Most High's principal agent rather than the claims of the reading that sees an infinite chain of gods above the head god. And I don't know if I've come to exclusively your view, but I definitely do see it as an option. As I pointed out last time, your strongest point, I think, is that Joseph Smith does pretty clearly teach that there is a head God, and that it would be, not that Joseph Smith didn't do this before, but you'd have to pretty much say what he said before wasn't revelation in order to accommodate for an infinite regress of gods if there is no head God. So I would agree that that seems to be the most logical way to read what he's saying, whether you can square it exactly with what he said in those two sermons. Maybe not, but it, there is a way to read it, as you pointed out, that still maintains that. Now, backtracking here, so another strength to review is it actually is supported by modern biblical scholarship. And so is this a view that Hebrew people had, in, in according to scholars, that there was a high god? And there were other gods as well? Yeah, I mean, it's very well established, especially since the finding of the Rashomon text, um, the Ugaritic text, that the proper background for understanding the Hebrew teachings in the Bible is the Ugaritic pantheon. In the Hebrew pantheon, the head god is called variously El Elohim, El Elyon, El Shaddai, among other names. And so, in the patriarchal age, that's the age that is attributed to be the age of Abraham in Genesis, El Elyon is the name of the God, or the, the Most High God, is the name of the God to whom Melchizedek worshipped, and to whom Abraham paid tithes. And El Elyon means the Supreme God, the Most High God, El the Highest One, or El who is the God Elyon. In some sense, it's referring to the God who is the God over the Council of the Gods. He is the Father God. And in the Council of the Gods, the head God is always the Father God. And like I was saying before, the entire vision of the Council of Gods is based upon the earthly monarchy. That's one view. The other view is that the earthly monarchy, this is the way they saw it in Israel, the earthly monarchy is based upon the way that things are done in the heavenly temple. And in the heavenly temple, El Elyon, the Most High God, reigns supreme. He has a right-hand man of Vizier who executes his orders, and the sons of God meet together to counsel and to carry out orders that he gives them, tasks that he gives them, and they all recognize the authority of El Elyon, just the way that the king would if his vizier were there, and if he had a council of sons who would meet or a council of, of those who would meet from the kingdom, they wouldn't be different in kind. 
though the king was recognized as divine by saying that, they didn't mean to say that the king wasn't human or that he wasn't the same kind of being that they are. That would mean that he was suffused with the glory of God to a greater extent. And so that's really the model that's underlaying the entire vision. Okay, and then we'll talk about that a little bit more, too, in this next section here. But the next section is one God among the gods appointed as ours. And so this is a direct reference to something from the Sermon in the Grove or King Follett Discourse, or maybe both. But Joseph Smith points out there is only one God assigned to us and one God with whom we have to do. Later, Brigham Young and people have interpreted that to mean that that would mean God the Father, and he was the one appointed to us from the Council of Gods, as you pointed out, as one of the possible readings. But you kind of take it in a different direction, and also one that makes sense, in that saying that, that the God among the gods that was appointed as ours refers to Jesus Christ, which makes sense, since we, we refer to him frequently as the mediator between you know the Father and us is Christ, and so that would only make sense if he's the God or divine being who is appointed to us from the divine council even would make sense. So let me read this quote, and then you can go on about that. You say, I believe that Joseph Smith taught that there is a head God who is the God of all other gods, and that the divine council, under the direction of this most high God, met to appoint a God over this entire world or scope of all that God created. Such of you would bring Joseph Smith's teachings into line with Deuteronomy 32, which states that Yahweh was appointed as the God of Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 is one of the oldest strata of sources in the Hebrew writings. Quote, when the Most High God, or Elion, gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he fixed the bounds of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God, Bene Elohim, or that's how you say sons of God in Hebrew, for the Lord's, which is referred to as Yahweh, portion in his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And that's from the Revised Standard Version. So this also, well, I guess this comes from Abraham, but before we get into the Abraham text, is there any other introduction to this view that you want to put forth? Well, critical scholarship has pointed out that in these very old strata, there's a notion that Elion and Yahweh are distinct beings. And what happens is Elion, as the Most High God acting in the Council of Gods, he has 70 sons that match the 70 nations that are identified in Genesis. And he's appointed each of these 70 sons over nations. And the one that he appoints over Israel, the nation of Israel, is Yahweh to be the God of Israel. And so that this is a, the consensus reading of Deuteronomy 32 and 8 through 9. It's regarded as a strata of text that goes back to pre-monarchy when El or Elyon and Yahweh were recognized as distinct beings. And so what has happened is the biblical scholarship has come around, and later we'll get into the very, very consistent teaching all the way from the oldest strata of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, that there's an angel of Yahweh, an angel of God, or wisdom, or the word of God, in Hebrew, debar, meaning, you know, the word of God, and that this word functions as an independent agent representing God. In the Gospel of John, we get it as, as the word of God, who's distinct from God the Father. And so we have this very consistent teaching of kind of a, a second being in heaven who is divine. 
and who is the Father's right-hand man. He is recognized as the dossier of the king. He is the one who actually executes the orders of the king. He's the one who meets with the council under the very name El, using the Father's name to meet with the council and represents God in the council. And so in some sense, El becomes, if you will, less and less accessible and becomes out of reach in a sense. And then the God that is appointed then becomes the primary actor for God in relationship to the world. We'll get into this more also in the second chapter when we talk about Psalm 82. It's remarkable because this is kind of the emerging consensus reading of the history of the idea of God in Israel. And it's remarkable because it, it fits so well in some ways with what Joseph Smith was teaching. And then, yeah, I'll just point to the book of Abraham here where you say it also kind of explains how we chose Jesus Christ to be appointed unto us. And that's in Abraham 3. It says, starting with verse 22, this is a dialogue between God and the council of gods. It says, Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was, and among these were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls that were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them, thou wast chosen before thou wast born. And there stood one among them that was like unto God. And he said, We will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these can dwell. And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered, Like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. So, I guess, you know, most Mormons recognize this as kind of having the plan presented to us. There's many noble and great ones which are supposed to be, you know, they're the rulers that will be appointed. Abraham is one of them, for example. Maybe different prophets are. But the next part should be pretty familiar with people because it's, you know, God saying, I need someone to be the Savior. And Jesus raises his hand and says, I'll do it. And then Satan's like, you know what, I'll do it, but I'll save everyone. You know, we have different lore around this later on. But then he's like, nope, I'm not going to send Satan. I'm going to, or Lucifer, I'm going to send Jesus Christ. So it doesn't go into like the falling of Lucifer or anything here, but that seems to be reminiscent of that. And so... Well, DNC 29 and the book of Moses both refer back to this kind of event occurring. Yes. So there's two peculiar things that I'd like to discuss, and you discuss them in the chapter, but it refers to one like unto God, and then one like unto the Son of Man. And so, well, you can explain this, but in the chapter you say that the one like unto God would seem to be Michael, the archangel, who in Mormon thought, later becomes Adam, whereas the one like unto the Son of Man is Christ. But why would like unto, in one sense, refer to not that being? So like unto God refers to not God, but like God, Michael, because that's what Michael even means. Whereas, you know, like unto, but not the Son of Man, seems to refer to the Son of Man, which is Christ. And there's some stuff about Daniel 7, I guess, that's relevant here. So what, yeah, what is I guess, first off, why do you say that like unto God means Michael, and then where does this term son of man even come from? First question, why would I say that when it says one like unto God means Michael, that's what the name Michael means in Hebrew. Michael means one like unto God or one like God. So it's just a direct translation of, of the name Michael. 
And there seems to be a distinction between one like unto God and one like unto the Son of Man. And so we're dealing with two distinct beings here, it seems to me. Those who are through the temple will understand the words that, that Michael speaks very clearly, which I believe is a reflection of Joseph Smith's understanding that's reflected in the endowment. His, this is his understanding of Abraham 3.24. And so that answers the first question. Uh, I, I equate that way because that's exactly what Mikael means in Hebrew. The second meaning, one like unto the Son of Man, this is a picture, if you will, a, a verbal picture that is reflected several times in the New Testament. It's reflected in, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's even reflected in Acts, where what you have is a quotation or a reflection back on Daniel 7, where the Son of Man appears in glory coming in power to bring the kingdom of God, which is exactly what the Son of Man does in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's a vision of the Ancient of Days, which I would take to be a translation of a term simply meaning the oldest of the gods or the highest of the gods. It means the most ancient being. And there are two thrones, and the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days and is given a commission to go and battle and basically bring about the kingdom of God. That's exactly how Christ portrays himself in the Gospel of Matthew. It's how he portrays, he portrays himself as the Son of Man. He refers to himself as the Son of Man over a hundred times in the Gospels. So equating the Son of Man with, with Christ and that role is very easy because Christ equated him with this exact same role and equated himself with the Son of Man, and the identification is unmistakable. All right, and so that's referring to the writers are associating Christ with this ancient Hebrew reference of from the book of Daniel. So it's making him more divine by referencing like that. Yeah, that's right. Except for the book of Daniel is not ancient Hebrew. The book of Daniel is a post-exilic work written in Aramaic. Well, just a, a historical writing is all I'm getting at. Yeah. Right. They didn't see it that way. They didn't. They didn't see it as uh, as anything other than an ancient writing. And it has this complex of ideas that Jesus borrowed to describe who and what he is and what his mission is. And so there's no question that, that Jesus Christ is relying on the vision of the Son of Man coming in glory, which then goes back to Baal, who plays the same role coming as the destroyer on the, uh, and the king on the clouds to bring about the kingdom of God. So there's this entire complex of ideas and the reference to the Son of Man in light of this complex of ideas, I, I believe, is, is very secure. And um, I think it's hardly debatable, actually. Okay. And that's assuming that Joseph Smith knew what all those references were, or I guess if it's Revelation and actually is, you know, an inspired writing rather than like a well, I guess it could even be a Midrashic text from inspired by the papyrus, then I guess that could definitely be the case. But I, as I said, you know, some other people have interpreted this to, well, maybe not this, but this plus what he said in the sermons and the King Follett and the Sermon in the Grove, that maybe one like unto God is just our Father. God was appointed to us from the Council of the Gods, and he's just one of the council. But like I said, but who knows? Maybe that's one of you. Also, well, we'll get into names and stuff pretty soon here, but interesting to point out that Ancient of Days is also in, I think Joseph Smith said this at one point, he said that that is actually identifying Michael, the archangel. It's a reference that's unique to the book of Daniel. The Ancient of Days is clearly God on his throne. He's the highest God. The Ancient of Days is, if you want to talk in terms of the Most High God, 
he's the original God. He's he's the most high. And so in the context of what the book of Daniel is saying and, and the way that it is appropriated by Christ, and the reason it's being used is that this refers to two divine figures, the Son of Man, who is sent and comes in divine glory, and the Ancient of Days, who he equates with his Father, who sends him to bring about the kingdom of God. I was just saying it's interesting that Ancient of Days is referred to usually as Adam or Michael in Mormon thought. Is is that something Joseph Smith did say, to your knowledge? Yeah, I think that Joseph Smith equated the Ancient of Days with Michael. Wouldn't that then make Adam God? Is I mean, that might be one of the way, reasons that Brigham Young had that thought. Precisely. I don't think that Brigham Young understood precisely what Joseph Smith was saying, but I think it's an easy jump from, well, he's referring to Adam as the Ancient of Days, and therefore, Adam must be the original God with whom we have to do, because in Daniel 7, he is, and the Son of Man, who is Christ, is subject to him. So, therefore, we have Michael, who is one of the head gods in the Council of the Gods, and he is the one who is in authority, and so he must be God. All right, well, let's just touch on this next section, then spend a little bit more time on the last one here. So. Again, the whole next chapter is about this, but the next section is Premortal Humans in the Council of Gods. And so, just to sum up, I guess, just among the gods in the pre-Earth Council were intelligences who existed eternally without creation before they became mortal. So, again, these beings were also actual humans. I'll just read this, and then you can elucidate anything you want, but let's keep it brief. They say, Joseph Smith's belief in a premortal spirits in the Council of Gods is well established. In the King Follett Discourse, Joseph proclaimed, The first principles of man are self-existent with God. God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was more intelligent, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. The relationship we have with God places us in a situation to advance in knowledge. He has power to institute laws to instruct the weaker intelligences, that they may be exalted with himself, so that they might have one glory upon another, and all that knowledge, power, glory, and intelligence which is requisite in order to save them in the world of spirits. Yeah, and I guess the only comment I have is note that here he uses the word spirits for the uncreated intelligences. And this notion that we existed before this life, again, is revolutionary. The notion that we were gods in the divine council is revolutionary to say the least. I'm going to back this idea up further in later chapters and show how it works with what was understood in Psalm 82 and the way that it was interpreted in John 10. But the bottom line is that we're the same kind of beings as God, but he has greater glory, knowledge, intelligence, and power than we do. And he has given us this opportunity to become everything that he is and that's the purpose of organizing the world, is that we can advance and grow and learn through the experiences that we have here. And, and so it becomes a, a rather full plan of exaltation, if you will. All right, and then yeah, on this last section, it's titled Elohim and Jehovah in Mormon Thought. So I guess just to start out, in Mormon Thought, at least in later elucidations and teachings, Elohim, at least, well, even in the temple, Elohim is often used to reference God the Father, and then Jehovah is a reference to the Son, or Jesus Christ, in his pre-mortal state, as well as, I guess, after, if you're referring to him as in his God form or whatever. 
And then Michael is also with them. But the Old Testament definitely didn't have a clear view on Jehovah being a, well, I don't know. It, the Mormon view isn't necessarily consistent throughout its history. So, for example, Joseph Smith himself used Elohim and Jehovah interchangeably to refer to God the Father. In fact, he actually said that God the Father's actual name was Amun, which is weird. I'm not sure where we got that from. But the later teachings that, you know, there are these distinct names for these distinct personages is not necessarily something that anyone needs to tie themselves to. And it can get a little confusing because it would seem, and I guess you kind of point this out and you would support this view, but it seems that every reference to the God of the Hebrews, which is Jehovah, at least as far as what's written in the Bible, is actually referencing the pre-mortal Christ as he is, in our view, the person that is dealt with in the Old Testament at all times. So no one seems to ever directly deal with the Father in the Old Testament according to these teachings. But you're saying it might be a little more fluid than that? If you look at the way the names are used in the in the Old Testament, you would never see a consistent pattern that Elohim refers only to the Father and Jehovah refers only to the Son or the Angel of God or something like that. In fact, Elohim Yahweh is translated as Lord God in the King James Bible, and they often appear together as kind of one name. Well, I guess we should point out, sorry, just point out Elohim is actually a plural, so it means gods. It doesn't necessarily even mean God. It means God's plural. It's also a personal name. It can refer to an individual god. Okay. It functions in a number of different ways. The name El also appears, El Elyon, all these names appear for the Most High God. But the scholarly view is that the distinction between El Elyon, the Most High God, and Yahweh became less distinct as time went on. And by the time we get to Second Isaiah, written in the exile, or after the exile, then the distinction between Yahweh and Elohim has completely disappeared. They're more or less regarded as the same being. If you would just back up for one second to help explain to people. So like, I assume most listeners probably have some knowledge of these kind of things, just because if you're still with us after this long, then you've probably, you know, you probably know about this kind of stuff. But if you don't, so with the Bible, when you're reading it, it's not necessarily, obviously, one text that was written coherently by one author. It's a whole bunch of different books that were told over time. A lot of it was oral tradition before it was finally written down. So when you refer to pre-exilic teachings, that's very different than post-exilic. And the exile is when Babylon came and captured Jerusalem, and they took all a lot of the like higher rich people off into captivity, and they left a whole bunch of the lower class back in Jerusalem and while they were in exile, that's when a lot of the actual Old Testament writings probably were first actually written down. And scholars are saying that before this time, monotheism, or the belief that there was strictly one God, as far as the Hebrews believed, is not necessarily exactly how it was. They had El before they had Yahweh, and there's different viewpoints represented even in one book. Like, for example, Genesis may have, you know, several different, not necessarily authors, but sources that they try to mold into into one cohesive story. Let me break it down. In the history of Israel, before the Hebrew were a people in Israel, the land was populated by the Hittites, and they wrote a Nucaritic. And we know what their belief is. They, these are kind of the pre-Hebrews, if you will. And so we see that they, they believed in a god El, 
And he had a son, Baal, who was the chief vizier over the sons of God. We see that kind of thought being adopted in the Old Testament in its own little strata. The next phase in Israelite history is the time period of the monarchy, the time of David and, and the kings, if you will, Solomon and Saul. And this is about 900 to 800 BCE. During this period, the identities of Yahweh and El Elyon were still somewhat distinct, and I think that the Israelites would have recognized them as distinct. Um, but they became, you know, you know, their roles became much more similar so that the second god, Yahweh, would be carrying out the prerogatives of El, and they would have been seen as essentially doing the same thing. Then, after the time of the monarchy, if you will, during the time of coming into 800, 700 BC, at the time of Isaiah, the prophet, the person who wrote the original book of Isaiah, during this time, there's still a recognition of the council of the gods as seen in Isaiah 6. And then we have the time, really, and this is a, a watershed, people need to understand this. You have Deuteronomy essentially created. It's found by King Josiah in the temple. And what most scholars believe is that Josiah essentially put Deuteronomy together. Very clearly, it also relies on some very ancient material. And so you're taking this ancient material, um, could have been verbal, could have been something that was preserved verbally, or there may have been some text that they had. But they take and, and put together the book of Deuteronomy. One of the primary purposes of the book of Deuteronomy is to justify the sole dominion of Jerusalem over the entire kingdom. Remember, in 721, you have the Assyrians who come and essentially destroy the northern kingdom. And so you've got the southern kingdom that remains, and what Josiah is trying to do is consolidate his power by getting rid of rival shrines and temples and other places of worship outside of Jerusalem. And at that time, there was they, they went and destroyed all of these other temples. I mean, temples at Hazor and Bethel and other places, where through archaeological remains, we know that the Josianic reforms destroyed these other temples where the people had been worshiping. And in those areas, there was probably a lot more Ugaritic influence or influence of these older views. And Josiah wanted to wipe out those views and consolidate his authority. And so he, what I would say is that he makes a much more singular authority in heaven to reflect his singular authority on earth. One view of Josiah is that he's kind of power hungry, if you will, okay? And then in 597 BC, Israel is sacked by the Babylonians. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple's destroyed. And the chief figures in the Jewish community were taken into Babylon. Not all of them were. Some remained behind. The Samaritans were the Jews that remained behind. But there were also a residue of people that remained behind. But then they returned from the exile. The Bible, as we know it, a great deal of it was written just before the exile. For instance, Jeremiah. These are genuine documents that go back to the time of the prophet Jeremiah, just before and at the time that Jerusalem is sacked by Babylon. And then we get writings of Ezekiel, which are also genuine, and they're existing and being written at the time, just before and while the exile is happening. We then get a number of writings in the Old Testament that are written in the exile. Second Isaiah would be one of those texts. But the Bible as we know it really didn't exist it's at that point that the notion of bringing together documents begins to take some form. 
And then, of course, they return from the exile. They return from Babylon and recreate the Jewish community in its entirety. They don't like the Samaritans because they didn't go through the trevise that they did in Babylon, and they're looked down upon and so forth. So that's kind of an overview up to the beginning. The second temple period begins when they build the temple that Herod completed, if you will. There was the temple of Ezra that was reestablished, and then you get the rule of the Hesmoneans and Maccabeans in Jerusalem and in the southern kingdom just before the time of Christ. And then the Romans come in and install their prefect, and, and Herod and his family are established as the rulers of the land, and that brings you up to the time of Christ. Okay. Good summary. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think we needed to get that out of the way because we're going to be talking about Hebrew thought a lot, so it's good to get context of where we are talking and and how it developed. So thank you for that. And so when I say that the book of Daniel is post-exilic, what I mean is it's written during the Second Temple period. It's written in Aramaic because that's what the people spoke when they were in Babylon. And when they returned to Jerusalem, they were reading and writing in Aramaic. And so the book of Daniel is very clearly written after probably about 300, it's written probably about 300 BCE, to give you an idea. Okay. All right. And then let me read this and then ask you why you're pointing this out now. So you say, it is imperative to keep in mind that the distinction between Elohim as God the Father and Jehovah as God the Son is a creation of early 20th century Mormon scholarship that was adopted more as a means of distinguishing the Father from the Son in common discourse than an attempt to reflect a fixed doctrine of divine identity. In other words, it is a mere convention of distinguishing the two rather than a doctrine or scriptural truth. So, that's true, but why are you pointing that out? Does it come into conflict later with some of what you find, are you going to point out about older Hebrew teachings? And so, if we did stick to that, then it would look pretty dumb, or what? Well, yeah, nobody reading the Bible in Hebrew could say that there is some kind of consistent identification of Elohim with the Father and Jehovah as the Son. And so we need to recognize that if somebody's reading the Bible, it would be very easy to upset that view, both in reading the Bible and in reading the earliest documents in Mormon history, where Joseph Smith refers to the Father as Jehovah repeatedly. And so if we adopt this and say, oh, no, it's true, Jehovah is, is always the Son and Elohim is always the Father, we need to recognize that it was folks like James Talmage who made this identification as a means of you know, when he's writing Jesus the Christ, and this is kind of his conclusion, it's not revelation, and as a practical matter, it's not good scholarship. And so if a person is basing their beliefs on this fixed identity, and then they find out that it just won't hold water, they're going to lose their faith. And so I'm pointing out, look, don't base your faith on this kind of an identification because it won't hold water, ultimately. Now, there is one observation I'm going to make that may belie that fact just a little, in the Hebrew documents, always, without exception, and also in the Ugaritic documents, El, El Elyon, and Elohim have sons of God. When the sons of God are always the sons of El or Elohim or El Elyon, they are never the sons of Yahweh. There's not a single text that refers to the sons of God being sons of Yahweh. And so the notion of paternity of the sons of God is exclusively related to the names Elohim, El Elyon, um, you know, these other epithets that relate to the Most High God, never with the name Jehovah. And so that requires some explanation. I don't have a ready-made explanation, but the explanation is not that Elohim is the Father and Jehovah is God the Son, always as it is reflected when those names are used in Scripture. Okay, makes sense. So, I mean, that pretty much sums up this chapter. And again, I, you 
can go back and listen to our last podcast because we talk about some of these more controversial aspects of the later teaching of Joseph Smith there. But these are less controversial, at least among Mormons in general, as far as like, you know, creation from existing things and council of gods and such. So what I've given are five facets of Joseph Smith's thought that have become the consensus of biblical scholarship, but that were rather outrageous and unique to him in his own day. And so I'm just pointing out that the best biblical scholarship is supporting Joseph Smith in these innovations. Great. And then moving forward, I, I can't find it, but there, I'll, I'll try to find it. There's a review of this book that points out that what you do is some pretty rigorous scholarship that what you're doing is comparing these Mormon ideas, juxtaposing them with the ideas of conventional Christianity, and showing that actual study of Hebrew beliefs and things like that kind of cuts off conventional Christianity's beliefs about what the Bible teaches about God off on its knees. But it also points out it also might do damage to some of the more what do you, what would you call it? Basic Sunday school understandings of Mormon doctrine as well. And so you kind of do both. And from that emerges a better understanding of both what the Hebrews believed and, and how that actually supports what Mormonism teaches, but that it's not necessarily as clean cut as one might get in Sunday school. Sunday school has a very different purpose than doing biblical scholarship. One should never mistake what is happening in Sunday school with what happens in a philosophy class looking at these kinds of ideas or what would happen in a, a class, a serious class of biblical scholarship. The purpose of Sunday school is completely different than those purposes. I have no problem with what happens in Sunday school, but we shouldn't think that the teacher who's doing the best that he or she can, oftentimes a new convert, we shouldn't expect our teachers to have to be biblical scholars or PhDs in philosophy to teach us, and they are not. Well, I have a question about that. I mean, some of the things you bring up do seem to contradict some of the, even the basis levels of what these Sunday school teachers bring up. I mean, how do you reconcile that? I mean, you're right. The way I'm approaching this is definitely not the way a Sunday school teacher could approach these issues. But this is an attempt to say, look, consider what is actually being taught in the Old Testament and the amazing thing is that Joseph Smith had these extremely innovative revelations, and the consensus of scholarship has come around to be on Joseph Smith's side of these issues. And I think they're all incredibly important within the scope of his overall thought. I think if this were presented to a Sunday school, one concept at a time, just kind of discussing them, that people would be able to understand it and reconcile it with their faith. But we shouldn't expect that what we believed when we were 15 years old is the same thing that we believe when we're on a mission or when we return from our mission or after we've studied for 40 years. We should expect that those things that we knew as children will be put away as childish things and that we will replace them with a more mature, more accurate, more complete, and, and broader understanding of the world and the way that it relates. And so I can't think of anything here I'm teaching that is any way really contrary to what's taught in, in Sunday school, but it's taught at a level and addressing issues that just would make no sense to get into in Sunday school. Well, I but suppose the biggest divide would have to be your approach on Revelation and exactly how binding are the words of our current prophets, because it seems you have a very loose definition, whereas the uh, current Sunday school setup is very strict in that, actually. You know, yeah, it's the other way around. I have a very strict definition of what constitutes revelation. Well, that, 
I mean, when it pertains to our modern prophets and apostles, what they say is taken to be much more strictly considered revelation as opposed to how you define it, which... Well, that, you know, we kind of want them both ways. A prophet is a prophet. When he's speaking as a prophet, prophets can make mistakes. They're not infallible and so forth. These are just bedrock kinds of teachings that everybody will accept. But when you point out what that means when the rubber hits the road, it's, oh, no. You know, if the prophet made a comment about not drinking tea, I should stay away from that kind of tea. Well, what does it say in the Revelation? And, and I've told you epistemically why I believe we have very good reason to give deference to Revelation, and that's because God knows more than we do, and if we believe that it's actually God speaking, we would be stupid to disagree with him. On the other hand, if it's just the opinion of a person, or if the person is basing their beliefs on a mistaken understanding as to what has been done in terms of Revelation, then we have every reason to be able to remain in the question and to discuss that in a good faith and respectful way. So, for instance, if the prophet says, gender is eternal, I've actually written a paper defending that view. But I don't right. believe I'm defending that view because the proclamation on the family is revelation. I know that recently the present prophet of the church stated that it was revelation. Yes. But what he means by revelation must be much, much broader than God gave me a revelation and I dictated it the way God said it to me. That's clearly not what happened with the proclamation on the family, like Joseph Smith did in his revelations. So Joseph Smith would be there with his friends, pure knowledge of revelation would pour into him, and he would speak slowly, and they would write down the words, Thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, and then God speaks in first person. The proclamation on the family is very clearly not that kind of revelation. That it's not God speaking in first person to us. And so when I'm speaking, there, there are different kinds of revelation. There are then things like section 134 that we've accepted as scripture. But really, section 134 is John Taylor's opinion about how the organization of the church in relationship to the state works. I accept it as binding, but I wouldn't hesitate for a moment to say, well, I think some of his ideas about democracy don't work real well. And I don't think anybody would disagree with me on that. It's like, well, yeah, that was clearly written by John Taylor. It wasn't dictated by God to him. Now, I don't believe in a dictation theory of revelation. I, I've given a theory of revelation in my paper that we've already discussed, the Book of Mormon as an expansion of an ancient document. And so I have this view of Revelation as creative co-participation, and I have spelled out what I believe Revelation is. Proclamation on the family is not the kind of Revelation where God is vouchsafing specific knowledge that can be dictated in words or given in a specific first-person statement. Now, is the proclamation on the family inspired? That is, is it did these people feel inspiration when they were writing. I have no doubt that they felt inspiration. And I think that when our prophet speaks that way, and I want to, I want to speak specifically of Prophet Nelson, what he's saying is we were inspired to write this. We were inspired while we were writing it. But it doesn't mean that it's the kind of revelation that Joseph Smith received when God was speaking to him directly in the first person, and he gave us God's words in the first person. So you're saying it might not be binding 100%. I'm saying it has a different level of authority altogether. Many of the things I have written, I have written under inspiration, but my heavens, I wouldn't take them as revelation in the sense that they're binding on anybody. You've been inspired. We've all been inspired. But none of us are saying, look, I was inspired when I wrote this talk, therefore you're bound by it because it's revelation. I mean, I'm sure you've given talks where you felt inspired on some of the things you've given. 
When I was a Sunday school teacher, I felt inspired very often to give a particular lesson. That didn't mean that I believed it was revelation giving indisputable truths to people that they had to follow. And so when we're talking about revelation, and I do this, we need to distinguish different kinds of revelation and, and distinguish between revelation where God is giving a direct message in the first person, thus saith the Lord, as Joseph Smith did, and as Brigham Young even did in section 136, or, you know, the kind of thing we get from, from Joseph F. Smith in the vision of the redemption of the dead. He said, I had a vision. This is what I saw. And this is what people said to me in the vision. Or this is what God said to me in the vision. He's reflecting words that were stated to him in a vision. Nothing like that exists for the proclamation on the family. It's a different level of inspiration. And so when we take it, we should take it at the level. Uh, and this is not a first presidency statement. In the past, the first presidency would issue proclamations. And their proclamations would be taken as binding on the church. It doesn't mean they were revelation, but I think the people who wrote them clearly felt that they had been inspired to write what they did. Having said that, the proclamation on the family was a work of the entire 12. And so now what we're saying is, and this happened also with revelation on the priesthood. The problem with revelation on the priesthood is it's undoing a revelation that never happened. There was never a revelation to withhold the priesthood from blacks. It was just ignorance of the historical record, and I think when they got around to really realizing what the basis for this refusal to give priesthood to the blacks was, they all realized, well, we don't have a basis for that. In fact, President McKay wrote several times that this is a policy, it's not a revelation, and it can be changed. There were others, like Carol B. Lee, who thought, well, you know, Brigham Young taught this, and he must have had some good reason for teaching it, and I want to know what it is. I think what he was actually saying was, there must be some revelation behind this, or he wouldn't have done it, and I want to find the revelation. And if we're going to change it, we better darn well have a revelation that will change it. When the practice with the blacks was changed, it was changed as a revelation to the entire First Presidency in the Twelve. And now we have the proclamation on the family that was writ by the entire First Presidency in the Twelve. So the notion of revelation seems to become a committee notion. It seems to become something that's done when the members of the Twelve divvy up assignments. I'm sure they pray and they study and they wait for inspiration and then they write and do the best that they can. But we should never take that to be the kind of revelation that, that Joseph Smith, I think, received, for instance, in the vision, section 76. They didn't have a vision. They don't say they had a vision. They don't say they heard the voice of God. They don't say that God dictated the words that were written to him. They were the words of, of the members of the Twelve writing the Declaration. So the Declaration has is an authoritative document. But it is not, in the strictest sense, a revelation. It's a revelation in another sense, in that they felt inspired as they wrote it. But that would have no more authority epistemologically in my book than many of the talks I've given where I felt like I was inspired to give the talk. Could I be wrong in what I said in a talk where I was inspired? The answer is, of course I could. May have I had a vision of reality that was less than complete when I gave the talk? Well, of course. And so we have to keep all of this in mind, and if they do canonize the proclamation on the family, which they haven't done yet, but if they do, then I'll reassess the authority that it has, but I still won't take it as the kind of revelation that Joseph Smith received, or that Brigham Young received in section 136, or that Joseph F. Smith received in section 138, and I won't take it to be the kind of superior knowledge that would require me to say, God knows a lot more than I do, so I better give deference to it because I'd be stupid to reject what God's saying or telling me. 
Well, I think it's an important distinction to draw because I don't, you guys have probably already touched on this before, but I mean, and I don't know what kind of people are listening to the podcast, but if someone's just coming out of Sunday school listening to this, they're going to be like, why don't these people just listen to what they say in Sunday school where they take just that everything they say is word of God. And I mean, there might, but I don't think that's our audience anymore. Like I, I started out that way, but hopefully the people that have stuck with it are probably, if you have any interest to stick with it, you can't stay in that mode of thinking, I would say. I actually found the quote I was talking about, so let me read what it says. So he says, he's giving us a review of the book, but he says, I won't rehash Osler's own summaries and arguments on these points here, though you should read them for yourself. They're persuasive, instructive, accessible, and they don't require any philosophical training. But I do want to make a kind of meta-observation about what Blake's approach here models for Mormon thinking in general. Here's what Osler does in this book. He marshals, to devastating effect, the best contemporary biblical criticism in order to cut creedal monotheism off at its knees and make room for a Mormon conception of God that is more complex, plural, and passable. Read that previous sentence again. Osler sides with contemporary biblical criticism in defense of Mormon theology. The interesting byproduct of this strategy is that, having cut creedal monotheism off at its knees, he has also cut generations of CES-style neo-evangelical Mormon readings of the biblical text off at the knees as well. Which it goes on, it's not saying that's a criticism, it's, it's just saying it's going to force people to not have that point of view. Yeah, and I, for one, have no problem with that. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.